Welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture with people in Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground Radio can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on 89.9 FM and at WERU.org. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm. On today's show, we'll be exploring seaweed, a source of food, fertilizer, and carbon sequestration off the coast of Maine. For the majority of the episode, we'll be listening to a panel discussion on seaweed called, Is Seaweed the Solution to Climate Change? The panel was recorded at the 2023 Common Ground Country Fair in September. The panelists are Nicole Price, a benthic marine ecologist with Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences in East Booth Bay, Maine, Aurora Burgess, a seaweed aquaculture coordinator at Atlantic Sea Farms in Biddeford, and Severn von Scharner Welcome of the Greenhorns and Smithereen Farm in Pembroke and co-founder of Seaweed Commons. Before we dive in, I'm going to speak with the panel's moderator, Bridget Huber. Bridget is a staff writer with Fern, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. The impetus for the panel was a story she wrote for Fern and National Geographic in June titled Climate Savior or Monsanto of the Sea. Bridget, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First off, can you tell me a little about the impetus for the panel and the selection of the guests? Sure. The panel came out of a story that I wrote for the Food and Environment Reporting Network, where I'm a staff writer that we co-published with National Geographic. I looked at, you know, the rapidly expanding seaweed industry and some of the tensions that are there. I think that Many people want to see the industry grow, but there are tensions around how and at what speed um, and in what sort of regulatory um, environment um, that will happen. So we organized this panel at the Common Ground Fair and invited as guests two of the people from the stories, Severin von Scharner, welcome, who is a farmer. She founded the Greenhorns. She is a small-scale seaweed harvester, a wild seaweed harvester, and also a small-scale seaweed farmer up in Copscook Bay. Um, Nicole Price, who is a senior research scientist at Bigelow Laboratory, who's working on different applications uh, that would use seaweed to combat different aspects of climate change. And we had Aurora Burgess, who works for Maine Sea Farms with seaweed growers, kind of helping them, you know, doing everything from driving trucks to the dock to helping troubleshoot people's growing operations. And then the fourth person that was invited was a representative from Running Tide, which is a startup based in Portland um, that is working toward growing seaweed to sink to the ocean floor uh, as a way to potentially remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But that panelist unfortunately couldn't come. So the panel delves into this more deeply, but what are some of the opportunities that seaweed presents in terms of mitigating climate change? Sure. So it's estimated that right now, wild kelp forests worldwide, they sequester around 200 million metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. Seaweed can also be used as an additive for cattle feed to reduce the amount of methane that livestock emit. People are working on using it as a replacement for feedstocks for biofuel. So instead of using corn, say for ethanol, you know, the hope would be to use seaweed. Bioplastics are another area. Um, and then there is the hope 
of using it more and more as a food source and maybe not just directly as something that's recognizable as seaweed, but as a sort of substrate, you could almost say, for processed foods that could replace things like soy, which have been linked to so much deforestation, which has you know a range of ecological problems, including contributing to climate change. So I'd like to just spend a minute talking about seaweed's ability to absorb atmospheric carbon and specifically the interests of venture capital and the tech industry. So your article, which I hope folks will read, provides some of an overview of the carbon removal landscape, so to speak, of seaweed projects. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. To, to put it really simplistically, when people are looking to seaweed as, as a climate change solution, they're kind of looking at two different pathways. There's the use it, so use it to displace things like you know plastic or fertilizers that come from petroleum products, things like that. So grow seaweed and use it for all of these products and applications that will displace high emissions products and inputs that we're using right now. And then there's the sink it side, right? And sink it is say the camp that running tide would fall into and there are a handful of others. And the idea there is to figure out how to grow large amounts of seaweed and sink it um, into the deep ocean floor. The idea is that it would remove carbon from the atmosphere because unlike, you know, say growing kelp and eating, kelp of course absorbs carbon. But when you eat it or, you know, it breaks off, that carbon is released. It may sequester carbon, but it doesn't remove carbon from the atmosphere on like a, you know, large time scale. So the idea would be instead of having the seaweed work in that shorter carbon cycle, it would put it into the longer carbon cycle. So the seaweed would sink to the ocean floor where theoretically it would remain in cold, dark conditions um, for 800 or more years. And so the carbon that it contained would be essentially locked up down there. So that's the theory. And people are trying out different ways to do it. Um, running Tides model has revolved around these buoys or micro buoys. They're balls. They're made of forestry byproducts. So the, the buoy itself contains carbon because there's, you know, forestry byproducts in it. Then it's coated in a limestone coating and then seeded with kelp. And the, the theory is that, you know, these buoys will grow their kelp, they will sink to the ocean floor, and they'll stay there um, for a long period of time. And that running tide will be able to then quantify how much carbon they're sequestering for how long and sell carbon credits um, to big companies um, that are, you know, trying to fulfill the many, many, many net zero pledges that companies are doing. In your article, you also mention the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and their recommendations around removal and sequestration of carbon. And I'm wondering in your reporting, if you got a sense of whether or not seaweed farming could scale up to meet the projected needs presented by the IPCC. Yeah. So the IPCC says that we need to, by 2050, be able to remove 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide equivalent from the atmosphere per, per year, and then double that, I think, by the end of the century. And that is really a lot. With the sense that I get from speaking with researchers who have, you know, done modeling to try to see what exactly would this look like, even just getting, you know, a fraction of the way to one gigaton of carbon dioxide removal would require something like covering the U.S. shoreline in a kilometer wide belt of seaweed farms. One of the big problems, I think, is that the rhetoric has gotten really hyped. There's real concern even among people who 
who are very much pro seaweed aquaculture um, that that some of these companies are promising things that just are not feasible. There would be, you know, enormous environmental costs, um, social costs, you know, to really expand on that sort of scale. So it's not that seaweed can't be part of the solution for sure, but as soon as people start to, you know, position it as the silver bullet, you start to get into shaky ground. What are some of the potential pitfalls of using seaweed in this way and what kind of research is needed? Sure. Environmental concerns are huge here because the ventures that want to grow seaweed to remove carbon from the atmosphere, they ne- would need to do it on a very large scale, right, to start to really make a dent um, in this issue. And so that would entail moving seaweed farming offshore, which isn't really something that's been done a lot. And from what I've heard, you know, even these ventures um, that are, you know, sensibly doing it or starting to do it still struggle with getting kelp to grow reliably offshore. So what happens when you put, you know, this near shore organism, all of the other living creatures that live on it and among it, you know, when you transport that into the deep ocean, we don't really know. There are worries that kelp farms could outcompete phytoplankton in the deep ocean, outcompete it for both nutrients in the water and light. And phytoplankton, you know, this is the basis of the marine food web. I mean, it could be a serious problem. There's also entanglement risk. You know, if you're putting ropes and cables out in the ocean, you know, whales, turtles, other creatures can become entangled for sure. And there are concerns about disease spreading to wild populations or spreading among populations if you have a large monoculture. And, you know, that has certainly happened before. Um, There are outbreaks of disease now um, in Asia. There have been some in Tanzania. Depending on what seaweed you're using and where and how it travels, you you can have problems with invasive species. So Hawaii, you know, has this relic from a 1970s project to grow a kind of algae to make a sort of a food thickener. The business venture went bust, but the algae remained behind and now it's an invasive species that, you know, has negative effects on coral reefs. So there are a lot of potential environmental pitfalls. But the other big thing is that it could be a real distraction, right, from solutions that we desperately need in the climate crisis. It could be a distraction from things that we know will work, like ending fossil fuels, things like restoring kelp forests and eelgrass beds and protecting the ones that we have, and also, you know, potentially developing alternatives to soy and the way that soy is used in our food system um, that could be based on seaweed. Yeah, there's a real tension, and that's apparent in your article, between what's referred to as the precautionary principle versus the duty to intervene. And while some of that comes up in the the panel, some of that was missing because of the lack of running tides presence um, on the panel. Some, Some other things that did come up in the panel were some conflicting viewpoints expressed around things like seed sourcing and pesticide usage in seaweed. Is there anything you'd like to say about that? There was definitely conflict around that and a number of other things in the panel. The one point that I would just add a bit of context to is a point that Severn made about a lack of local control and how, you know, there's not enough opportunity for public input um, on some of the decisions about granting licenses for seaweed aquaculture, for aquaculture in general. Nicole Price does make the point, which is true, that there are always public hearings associated with approving leases um, and leases, you know, tend to go through this um 
sort of stepped process where first they're experimental and then people are allowed to have larger leases for longer periods of time. That's all true. However, I have noticed here living um, in the Midcoast, there are towns that have put into place temporary um, aquaculture moratoriums. Um, and it's not because of finfish aquaculture. So this is not about salmon farms. It's about shellfish um, aquaculture, seaweed aquaculture, and the feeling that the Department of Marine Resources is approving 95% of leases, is approving too many of them, that's, that towns don't have enough say over what's happening on their rivers and in their waters. I think that the idea that there is no tension around the amount of public input is not correct. I think that there is tension. Is there anything else you'd like to prep our listeners for before we turn over to the panel from the Coming Around Country Fair? I think just the one thing that struck me, and you know, we used it as the the headline for the story that ran on Fern's website, which was Climate Savior or Monsanto of the Sea. Obviously, it, that is a somewhat hyperbolic statement. It comes from Brent Smith, who runs Green Wave, which does a lot of seaweed and shellfish aquaculture in Long Island Sound. But embedded in that is, you know, these real concerns around what happens as we start to farm the ocean. Are we going to repeat the problems that we see with terrestrial agriculture? So things like uh, monocultures, corporate control, environmental harms, you know, so there's a real sense that if we're really going to be farming the ocean, this is the chance to do it right. Thanks so much for joining me, Bridget. Up next is the panel discussion moderated by Bridget called, Is Seaweed the Solution to Climate Change? Before I introduce our panelists, I just want to say a few words to frame the discussion. This conversation comes out of a story that I reported for Fern and National Geographic and really looked at the way that seaweed has in recent years been put forward as a potential solution to climate change. Um, sometimes people talk a bit about seaweed like it's a Swiss Army knife, able to absorb carbon dioxide, reduce methane emissions from livestock, provide feedstock for biofuels, and feed the world, all without any you know, synthetic fertilizers, freshwater, or even land needed. North America's seaweed industry is tiny compared to the industry in Asia, which is much more established, but it's growing quickly. There's a lot of seaweed aquaculture happening here in the state. Maine farms more seaweed than any other state, and there's a great deal of wild harvesting happening too. There's also a lot of money coming into this sector throughout North America. ARPA-E has funded a lot of research looking into biofuels. That's a Department of Energy program. We have tech companies like Microsoft and Shopify spending money, helping to develop some markets for potential credits based on sinking seaweed for carbon removal. And Jeff Bezos has you know, donated about $100 million to the World Wildlife Fund to fund seaweed research. In this audience, I think that we probably have a lot of folks who are using seaweed in their gardens and on their farms. Also, a lot of that is wild harvested. So we're going to try to, um, to talk a little bit about that today, too. So we're really hoping to look at the opportunities that seaweed presents and some of the potential pitfalls as this area expands, especially with an eye to how we're looking at seaweed in relation to climate change. Um, so with that, I would like to introduce our panelists. Um, we have Nicole Price. She's a benthic marine ecologist at the Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences and with an interest in how global change phenomenon like ocean acidification and warming can alter bottom-dwelling species interactions, community dynamics, and ecosystem function in shallow coastal regimes. 
She also applies her expertise to explore mitigation strategies for coastal acidification and climate change, such as blue carbon and use of farm seaweeds. We have Aurora Burgess. She's the seaweed aquaculture coordinator at Atlantic Sea Farms. She has a background in aquaculture research and education, helps to support Atlantic Sea Farms' network of farmers with everything from technical assistance to teaching how to seed and harvest, even picking up harvests at the dock. And she also helps seaweed farmers to navigate the leasing and permitting processes. We have Severin von Schoener Fleming, who is co-founder of Seaweed Commons, which is an online learning community of seaweed farmers, harvesters, scientists, and advocates. She's a farmer, activist, and, down and organizer based down east in Pembroke on Cobbs Cook Bay. She runs Smithereen Farm, which is a Mafka certified organic wild blueberry, seaweed, and orchard operation. She's also a founder of Agrarian Trust and of the Greenhorns. To start off, Nicole, could you introduce us to seaweed and talk a little bit about how seaweed grows and how it sequesters carbon dioxide? That's a big question, <laughs> so I'll try to do my best. If you're unfamiliar with seaweed, you probably recognize it going along the beach, trying to avoid stepping on it or stepping around it. Um, but seaweed's very common. It's broken up into three major groups, browns, reds, and greens. And we have about 250 species of seaweed along our coast of Maine. Seaweeds are not plants. They're in a completely different phyla but they still perform similar functions where they absorb nutrients from the water column and they absorb light as well as carbon dioxide in order to perform photosynthesis. Their structure is very diverse, but basically it's broken down into the portion that's called the blade, which is similar to the leaf, but that also absorbs the nutrients as well as the carbon dioxide and light. Some stipes that are similar to stems and then the hold fast, which looks like it's similar to the root system, but actually does exactly what its name is. It holds on to the rocky substrate, and that's really its only function. And so when we think about carbon sequestration from trees or any plants, it's really the passing of that carbon that's been fixed during photosynthesis to the soils. That doesn't happen as obviously in seaweeds, and it's why they have not been a part of the blue carbon conversation until recently. What happens with seaweeds, we surmise, although there's still a lot of research going on, is that parts of the seaweed break off naturally while it grows, and those fragments become part of the detritus that can float around in the ocean. Some of that will either get eaten, pooped out essentially, and then go down to the sediments, or fall to the sediments on its own, or to sea levels that are so low, so deep, that the turnover rates back up into the carbon system are on a thousand year time scale, so they're effectively removed from the global carbon system. That's the act of sequestration from seaweeds, and that is quite hard to measure, but it's some of what we're working on at the Little Laboratory. Thank you. Severin, can you tell us a little bit about your work with Seaweed Commons, um, who Seaweed Commons comprises, and what some of your concerns are? During the times of COVID, we began Zooming with seaweed harvesters around the world to discover our shared concern and the kind of thematics of our concern. A lot of small seaweed harvesters, harvesters of Limo in Hawaii, in Norway, in Ireland, in Scotland, in Maine, in Alaska, all of us talking about what we observed just from our little harbors with our own eyes since the conference scene was, set was shut down by COVID. And not all of us are the best at wading through scientific papers. 
interacting with people who interact intimately with the intertidal on a daily basis who are passionate and who are very observant in this you know glistening wonderland of algae became a way of kind of forming a set of principles that we compiled in a position paper it's called a precautionary approach to seaweed aquaculture which has many of the members of seaweed commons as signatories so we have signatories from many countries marine biologists natural history humans chefs as well all of them interested to articulate our shared concern and our right to participate in the regulatory environment in a commons. So as you well know, the oceans is a commons owned by us all. It is not private property. And so all of us are stakeholders in the rulemaking process for how our, our oceans will be cared for and used. In Maine and in many other places, the decisions are made, in fact, by lobbyists and by industry. And that is unfortunate that we don't have enough listening in that regulatory process. So part of the purpose of gathering and putting all our voices together was to say, we must be heard on this topic. So I am coming from Cobscook Bay, which had 27 canneries in the 1800s and into the 1900s. Now there are zero canneries. And that's a community like many of the communities where beautiful, pristine waters and forests come to the sea where seaweed can be grown that's healthy and delicious and good as fertilizer and good as food. But these are imperiled, rural, economically marginalized, sparsely populated youth departure type places where um, large finfish aquaculture operations like Cook Aquaculture and other salmon farm aquacultures around the world in Norway and Scotland and Alaska and um, Canada, you know, are the kind of traditional players in that kind of community. So there's a a lot of sociological as well as ecological concerns that we bring up in this book. Mostly, I'm a passionate, passionate lover of seaweed, eater of seaweed, sharer of seaweed, fertilizing gardens with seaweed, and it's out of love for this, our shared ancestor, all of us terrestrial life forms have as a shared ancestor, this amazing algae that produces 80% of the oxygen on Earth, including the microalgae, and is a a shaper of the marine environment, a host to so many hundreds and thousands of species in our coastal environments. This like rich tapestry of the undersea forest that is one of the most productive ecosystems on earth that we have a duty to protect. And so I just want to say it's love and it's and it's fierce for, for many of the people in the CB Commons. Thank you for taking us into that that underwater forest. Aurora, I'd love to hear a little bit about Atlantic Sea Farms and, you know, the farmers that you're working with, many of them are growing seaweed in part because their own livelihoods, right, have been impacted by climate change and by environmental change. So could you tell us a little bit about your work? So Atlantic Sea Farms is a vertically integrated, woman-run, regenerative aquaculture company. So we work with about 30 fishermen farmers. So we work with lobstermen or marine businesses mostly to grow kelp in their off season. And the reason we reached out to fishermen was because in the last few decades, they've seen a lot of their fisheries disappear. And we've got about one big fishery in Maine. And I think you can all guess what it is, it's lobster. So we work with lobstermen. They've got the boats, they've got the gear, they've got the infrastructure and capital to start a kelp farm but they also know how to work on the water safely. And they've got this big swath of time in winter 
where there's no longer a fishery for most of them and they aren't fishing, they can't hold their crew, they're not using their gear, and kelp farming falls really nicely into that winter period. So they're able to switch from fishing to farming. So we work with them to provide them seed. So we grow all of the seed in our nursery, we provide it to our partner farmers for free, and then we give them a pre-season guaranteed price of what we will pick their kelp for up at the dock. We drive them down, we pick it up in a refrigerated truck, so it's a lot like fishing for them. They don't have to worry about where it goes afterwards. We'll take care of all of that. But we have a huge focus on good food should do good. We want to make sure that we are paying our farmers a good price, that they know we're going to be there at the end of the day. Things like COVID aren't going to trip us up and make us disappear. Um, it's that stability that we're really looking to provide. And additionally, seaweed's a nice a nice future prospect for a lot of our farmers because as we see winters get warmer and we see the water get warmer every single year that's going to start affecting lobster unfortunately mostly larval lobster and most likely will change how fishing looks in the next few decades and it'll also change how seaweed farming looks but there's ways to change and adapt and diversify and we're hoping that seaweed can start to fill that niche for them. Great and just to stay with you for a sec we're in an interesting moment where there is this industry that's being built, um, people are doing all this work, but we're, we're all operating within this environment of extreme uncertainty, right, about what's coming environmentally. And so how could seaweed farming change in the near future or further off? And, and how do you sort of both work to prepare farmers and also you know, help them adapt as things keep shifting? There's a few things we're looking at. The big ones are we are looking at diversifying our crops just like everyone looks at diversifying crops as seasons get shorter and things change. So species diversity, right now in Maine, there's a few species grown, but the big one is sugar kelp. Sugar kelp is the vast majority of what's grown. Skinny kelp's probably number two, a little bit of like ribbon kelp after that, but it's pretty much all kelp's being grown. A lot of other seaweeds are wildly harvested. So we're starting to look at other species of seaweed who might do better in warm water, might do better in shallow water, different things like that might do better with more energy as we start getting more winter storms because of climate change. And then the other thing we're looking at is something that has been done for decades in Asia, and that is um, starting to do a little bit of strain selection. So that we make sure we're selecting for seaweeds that might be better adapted to warm water, might have a shorter growing season, be able to pack a bigger punch in a few, fewer months, um, things like that. So as our seasons start getting shorter and our waters start getting warmer, we can still continue to grow seaweed in Maine. You are listening to Common Ground Radio at WERU 89.9 FM. I'm Holly Cedarholm, and today's show features a panel discussion called Is Seaweed the Solution for Climate Change? The panel was organized and facilitated by Bridget Huber from FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. So Nicole, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the research that you have done in recent years. Tell us a bit about sort of the scientific game. What do we know about you know, where seaweed can be beneficial in mitigating climate change? And what don't we know? What are the, what are the questions that we're still trying to resolve? Well, as always is true in science, the minute you think you answer one question, 10 more sprout up. So there's plenty that we still don't know and that we're trying to learn. But some of the things that Bigelow's been working on with partners from other institutions across the Northeast region 
involve getting at the exact rate of carbon uptake by seaweeds, and especially trying to answer the question as to whether or not seaweeds can create this quote-unquote halo effect or a, a buffered region of seawater that's less acidic because it's pulling the carbon dioxide out of the seawater. This is interesting to us because it could help shellfish that are co-cultured in the same location be more resistant to the future impacts of ocean acidification. And we got really excited when we started doing this work on some Atlantic Sea Farms lease sites in Casco Bay. We started in 2016, did it again in 2017 and 2018, so showed three years in a row that that one farm anyways was able to demonstrate this halo effect was happening. The next obvious question is, how reproducible is that scenario? And so we've expanded our research to Norway and Alaska. So seaweed farming is also growing quite rapidly in Alaska. And we've had a partner farmer conduct the same research in Rhode Island. And there are instances where it's reproducible. And we're trying to understand the instances where it's not. To best guide folks where, if you want to try culturing, you can affect the yields of your mussel farm as well as your seaweed farm. And for people who grow things in the ground, it shouldn't surprise you at all that growing two things together might give more yields than growing one alone. But it is a new concept for growing things in the ocean. Some of the other work that we're doing looks at whether or not you can measure that rate of sequestration. I was part of a group called Oceans 2050 that was run by Jacques Cousteau's granddaughter, Alexandra Cousteau. And we did research on under seaweed farms in 24 sites around the world. I can't remember how many countries, but one of the farms was in Japan. It was a 300-year-old farm. And then we also looked at a farm in Maine. And that was really interesting because it's the first time that people have tried to quantify the amount of carbon sort of raining down from a seaweed farm and how much of it is ending up in the sediment. And once again, we found evidence that it can happen in certain locations and it's measurable, but not in other locations. And it will depend on the size of the seaweed farm, potentially the type of seaweed that's grown there, and the quality of the sediment underneath the seaweed farm. And then my third and final example of some research knowns and unknowns is the work that we're doing on what do you do with the seaweed once you've harvested it. And we are really interested in seaweed as livestock feed, particularly for the dairy industries. We're working both with organic and conventional dairy farmers to discover if you feed the seaweed to the cows, does it change their rumen microbiome in a way that reduces the amount of methane that they're burping out, which is really exciting because methane, as you might realize, is 30 times worse than carbon dioxide in terms of its greenhouse warming potential. So any reduction of that gas could be really meaningful. And for a typical dairy operation, 40% of the greenhouse gases that they're emitting come from those enteric methane emissions. So we're talking about a small change in a diet. It's just a 1% or less inclusion rate that would have a very big impact on how much greenhouse gases we're putting in the atmosphere. There's a lot to learn though about species specificity and particularly about what we can do during the processing stage of the harvesting seaweed to increase its ability to be able to reduce that enteric methane emissions. And then finally to learn a lot about that bioactive compound and ensure that it's not coming through the milk into the food system if that's something that we're worried about. So lots of questions about that project. Um, it's called the Coast Cow Consumer Research Project, and we have a website if you want to follow us. I do also want to ask you about something that I know that you're not um, involved with, but 
I think you have perspective to share on it. Unfortunately, one of our panelists wasn't able to make it today, who is from Running Tide, which is a startup based in Portland. It's looking at basically trying to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere using biomass, some of that is woody, but eventually seaweed is part of the model that they're trying to develop. And they've actually begun to sell some carbon dioxide removal credits. This work happens, you know, far offshore, so it's quite different than the sort of setting that Nicole's discussing, which is closer to shore. It's raised a lot of money. It's also raised a lot of consternation, I think, about, you know, worries that that this work is getting ahead of the sciences and that it, the science could really you know, lead to some environmental impacts um, that, that would not be good for the ecosystems that they're operating in. So Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about that model and give us your take on how, how viable this is and what some of the concerns are? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think this is where Seven and, and I agree a lot in that we don't want to see any unintended consequences through an excitement around an intervention that does not yet have a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, to support that it's going to be effective. So what Bridget is talking about is the idea of growing a seaweed crop, but for the sole purpose of sinking the entire crop to sequester that carbon. And we're talking then about the need to expand rapidly the size and number of farms to achieve that particular goal. I would rather see that harvested crop used in an increasingly food insecure world for these other purposes. And I would love to see tools used like life cycle assessment that take accounting of all the carbon that's emitted in each of those steps and all the carbon that's sequestered in each of the steps to ensure we're talking about a net negative process, a net carbon removal process. So even in our research with feeding seed to cows, we think a lot about what's the carbon footprint of the processing step and what would that mean then for the total end result of removing carbon or reducing carbon emissions. The other problem with sinking seaweed in large biomasses is that we do not have any good data one way or the other of what that might do to the deep sea benthic habitats. There's life down there too, and you don't want to smother it either. And we also have no idea what the permanence is of that seaweed at the bottom of the ocean or even any shallow coastal habitats. And that's where we're first trying to develop the tools to be able to measure those changes and then apply those tools in small process-based studies to understand those situations. Thank you. And Severin, is this something that you'd like to respond to too? I'd like to hear, you know, when you, when Seaweed Commons talks about taking a precautionary approach, you know, if you could say a bit more about what this looks like on the ground. So the Seaweed Commons, a big part, a big thematic is that this is a commons and that we are all um, beneficiaries of this world that is stabilized in its oxygen supply and its carbon sequestration by this beautiful set of life forms, these 11,000 species of algae that are growing. And so a big part of that is to welcome more people in as kind of algal stakeholders. Um, because what's being experimented with by these kind of casino speculators with tech money is an idea that they could swipe left and erase carbon emissions that they've already made by having a vertically integrated carbon credit market that is you know, unregulated, exists in a loophole that shouldn't exist, is happening in our common waters, and imperils life on Earth. So it's a pretty in pretty stark terms that I am condemning um, some of the pretty mainstreamified, very highly publicized 
um, experiments that are going on in public waters. And you know, in, in the late 80s, there was a, a lot of experimentation on geoengineering and dumping of iron filings into the ocean and experiments on sky, uh, brightening of clouds, etc. And these proposals, a lot of them are the equivalent of geoengineering proposals. It's about farming at scale with robots across hundreds of thousands of kilometers. You know, farming with robots between the windmills is how one of the Norwegian uh, tech providers at the recent Seagriculture Conference in Portland described it. So these proposals are not just about lifting up lobstermen in coastal small towns, small harbors, small boats, small you know, local economies. That is a laudable, powerful, positive framework. I'm talking about you know, the literally millions of dollars of research money from our Department of Energy, from Venture, from groups like Bezos that are pushing you know, extremely unproven solutions. Filament of, of metal to feed the kelp that's then thrown out into the ocean where we do have protection laws for marine mammal protection. Where's the science to show that it won't hurt those marine mammals? I start to fume and it, it's hard because it's so egregious to me. And I would just say in that welcoming, I would love to welcome any of you who are interested in seaweed. The low, low tides of spring in Cobscook Bay, we have a two, 22 foot tidal difference, which means a huge acreage of exposed algal forest in these extreme tides in the spring. And we every year, six years now, we've been having seaweed symposia with speakers on seaweed topics, naturalists. Um, the Maiden Natural History Observatory has been doing baseline studies of the native seaweeds in the main coast, looking at the new arrivers and the new invaders, looking at the how these communities are structured, just getting the baseline ecology of our coastal forests, of our algal forests, you know, is kind of the work that they're undertaking. The majority of what's happening in terms of algae in Maine isn't farmed, it's actually wild harvest of uh, ascophyllum, which is used by many, many organic farmers under the name of kelp. For organic farmers in the room, you may know that the Organic Standards Board ruled in 2018 that the current regulatory context for wild ascophyllum harvest does not meet the sustainability standards laid out by iFoam and by the um, USDA organic definition. Um, they're concerned that that is an overharvest from a wild ecosystem. So although for cows, especially and dairy cows is one of the big theme songs here, we have, as you know, degraded soils that are demineralized. We have chelating herbicides like glyphosate. We have struggles with reproduction in farrowing hogs. You know, agriculture is in crisis in minerals and you know, the biostimulant effect of seaweed can have extremely life-giving and regenerative impact in agriculture. And the question is, are we taking too much from a wild ecosystem? Are there impacts of having you know, large acreage farms? Are there impacts of monocultures or these, this new conversation about sea strains? You know, one year ago, I was very grateful to hear Brianna Warner committing to native seed. In Alaska, it's the rule. Only native seed will be farmed out of care for a drift, genetic drift from a farmed juvenile, you know, it's a little tree plantation that you're growing into the wild populations where we know that in Northern California, ocean heat wave caused a 96% decline in the bull kelp populations. These extreme weather environments mean the native genetic diversity of our native existing seaweed forests 
need all the information that they can get from their ancestors to be able to respond to this onslaught of new pressures. And so when you're inserting then in these bread varieties, yeah, maybe they do make better biofuel, but what are the downsides in terms of the survivability for the entire ecosystem of these extreme weather events? I mean, seaweed is endlessly fascinating. The themes you know, that you might like to explore include looking at the sargassum overgrowth in the Caribbean, looking at the experiments with bioremediation at the mouths of rivers, and then using that algae that's being grown in the poop of humanity to do things like bioplastics. This conversation that's happening at Woods Hole about CRISPR modified kelps being introduced into Maine waters, again, without public in input, um, that would be a, an egregious mistake. The disease and pest, pest pressure on these you know, new farms. In Maine, we have this lacuna snail. It's called the lacuna victa. Already the conversation is, what do we spray to stop this snail? So as agroecologists in this community of Mothka, I think Again, we welcome, I'm as a seaweed commoner, welcoming more people because I think coastal organizations, environmental organizations, organic farmers actually have a lot to contribute to this conversation and to, to participate with this seaweed sector as it evolves. You know, in Asia, where 97% of the seaweed is created, again, 50% of the weight of aquaculture in the world is seaweed. So it's a huge production actually already in the world. We have plenty that we can know from more established um, seaweed economies in Asia where plastic pollution have been a mega problem. In Korea, they have now established a bounty for growing kelp and other seaweeds without styrofoam because their beaches are sprayed with styrofoam. As someone who lives in Cobscook Bay where we have Cook aquaculture, this, uh, the now consolidated only actor in salmon farming in Maine, started as many farms, is now one company that operates in 13 countries. Where is all this pellet coming from? Cook aquaculture, spraying our beaches with exploded buoys. So in terms of the materials used, in terms of where they're sited, in terms of their scale, there's so many things that are currently undefined by the rules that we have here in Maine. There is a 100 acre limit currently within DMR for a seaweed farm. Questions about marine shading, about changes to the local currents, about impacts on the other users of that space. These are questions that need to be answered thoughtfully and considered by more people. You've touched on so many places that this conversation you know, needs to go. Nicole, I feel like maybe there were some things in there that you wanted to respond to. It makes sense for us to talk a bit about, you know, for this audience of folks who are organic farmers, gardeners, consumers, um, talk a bit about organic standards. Um, and I know that both of you have been involved in those conversations. Sure, uh, I'll be brief. I was involved in rewriting language with the National Organic Standards Board for Wild Harvest of Seaweed. We spent a lot of time thinking about what could make it more sustainable and introduced that new language to USDA, who elected not to choose it for I'm not sure what reason. But I'm happy to share with you all what those conditions were. And they're in fact the same conditions that the main wild harvesters already meet. And that is to leave behind fruiting bodies, the reproductive structure, to leave behind enough structure that the forest structure can remain and regrow within a certain amount of time to maintain the organisms that live within. Um, and no bottom trawling, no just 
complete degradation of the bottom. So the main harvesters think very carefully about this too, and the Maine Seaweed Council has gotten together to write their own best practices approach because it hasn't even been asked for by the state yet. I also want to speak to the statement of using CRISPR or genetic modification for seaweeds. That is not actually happening at the Woods Oceanographic Institute. And what we're talking about when we talk about selective breeding is just basic put two together and see what you get and see if it can stand the conditions that you presented to it. The conditions that people are most worried about selective breeding for is in fact thermal tolerance to ensure that these populations exist in the warming future. Because Bigelow and scientists there have gathered evidence that there are some species that have started disappearing from our southern coasts. We're also doing other things like trying to develop cryopreservation techniques to make sure we can maintain the biodiversity that's present on our coastlines. I guess I would just point to some of the great places to learn more on this subject. Um, for instance, the North Atlantic Marine Alliance is called NAMA. They just took lots and I think hundreds and hundreds of surveys on their kind of aquaculture with values report exactly to be constructive in defining, well, what is the kind of aquaculture that you know is nourishing, is enhances regional food security, respects local ecologies, respects the people involved. Another wonderful network is called the Local Catch Network that's very active here in Maine. Slow Fish USA, as well as internationally, have focused a lot on this topic. EcoTrust Canada and the Suzuki Foundation and Hakai Magazine out of British Columbia have been major voices. So British Columbia and Washington State have you know, experienced pretty intense pressure from fin fish aquaculture from salmon farms for a while now and and some of the people who have been signatories on seaweed commons you know have been studying sea lice and the spraying of, of pesticides onto onto these farm rain fish for decades those places british columbia and washington state are now shutting down salmon farms in their waters because those impacts have become un, un um, endurable and so the salmon farms are looking for new places and Maine is one of those places. I think it's important to keep salmon in the conversation with seaweed. You know, a year ago the conversation was more about integrated multi-trophic aquaculture and this idea that the seaweed would clean up the manure of the salmon and this kind of beautiful closed loop diagram that you might have seen in, you know, big magazines in the United States. And that conversation has gone away in an interesting way. I wonder if it's because it's kind of not proven viable. The researcher of Woods Hole who came to the Secret Culture Conference in Portland in March, he was saying, come on DMR, you need to let us bring these new strains into Maine waters. Maine's going to fall behind Alaska. We're going to fall behind other states. We need to be open to these bred varieties. And so currently, Maine says you can only farm seed that's gathered in Maine, and that's a question that's being pushed. It's a, a question that needs to be discussed more, so I think that's a good thing we should keep doing. Today on Mofka Common Ground Radio at WERU 89.9, we're exploring seaweed as a solution for climate change with a special broadcast of a panel discussion facilitated by Bridget Huber from FERN, the Food and Environment Reporting Network. The panel was originally held at the Common Ground Country Fair in September 2023. I know we were, we were once to respond to some of this, so here you go. 
So on the seed thing, as Severin said, seed has to be collected from Maine and it has to stay in Maine. We can't move it around. ASF, we have a more stringent model, but that's because we found that local seed grows better on local farms. I mean, think about it. If you got something out of your backyard, it's happy there, it wants to be there. It's the same with seaweed that we're finding. So that's why we've chosen to be a little more localized. But we're not bringing seed from out of state. We're not putting it into our waters. The second thing I wanted to address was on the snails. Uh, so ASF grows upwards of, our partner farmers grow upwards of about 80% of the seaweed that's grown in Maine. So a significant amount of seaweed is from our farms. About 60 so percent of that is MAFCA certified. So we have organic certified farm seaweed. We have never talked about spraying the snails. We've never thought about spraying the snails. DMR's heads would probably explode if we brought it up. We would never do that. But we do work with mother nature. We're not running the game when you're working in the ocean. If you guys are farmers, you know the same thing. Like, you're not running the game. Mother Nature's gonna change the temperature, she's gonna throw a storm at you. You gotta roll with the punches, and that's what we do with the snails. Snails tend to be more prevalent on some farms, and that's why you experiment with new places. So if you've got a very snail-heavy farm, I'm serious, maybe 100 yards away, they won't show up on a farm there. So it's a little bit about finding the right space, and they do become more prevalent as spring gets closer. Our farmers go out just like anyone would check on their crops and look at their crops a ton. If we start seeing snails, we might harvest a little earlier. Just like if you start sawing a pest instead of spraying, you might just harvest a little bit earlier. So there are natural ways to deal with these and we aren't, we're not even thinking about pesticides or anything like that in, in seaweed farming right now. Just two more quick things about process for getting a lease for a seaweed farm. It is also an incorrect statement that there's no public involvement in that process. There absolutely is. For each lease application that is submitted to the Department of Marine Resources, there is a town hearing that is held where the people who are going to be affected in that area have every opportunity to present their concerns. The other piece that I wanted to mention is about whether or not this state is going to allow seed that has not come from this state be grown in the state. I have been appointed by the State Commissioner to the Seaweed Fisheries Advisory Council. I also sit on the Maine Climate Council Science and Technical Subcommittee. Those decisions don't get made at the drop of a hat, and in fact they will all be scientifically evidence-based choices based on the genetic diversity in the wild population that we have in the state, and what does this new strain that someone might want to introduce, how does that fall within that existing genetic uh, diversity that's already here? Is it related to the populations that we already have or will it introduce new material? Those kinds of questions will all be scientifically evidence-based and then you will hear about them in the public hearings for these applications. I know there are questions here. So folks who have questions, um, love to hear them. I actually work for Running Tide uh, in their shellfish department, not in the carbon credit thing. Right. I just wanted to clear up something regarding the sinking of kelp. We're not like growing it in a farm setting and then dragging it to a tug and dragging it out to the deep ocean. That doesn't make any sense. We're working more on sort of autonomous solutions to that. So kelp that we would be growing is in no way able to be fed to people at any point along that path. It's more of a diffuse situation than a, a harvesting crop in a variant situation. Right. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Glad you're here. So to clarify, right, the model that Running Tide is working with is not growing seaweed in the near shore and hauling it out to sea to sink it. It's about working on ways to grow kelp 
right, in the deep yeah. ocean. Yeah, and Running Tide is also one of, you know, a number of ventures that are using different methods, but with the same idea of sinking seaweed um, in order to absorb carbon dioxide. Great, thank you. Okay, question, yes. You recently decided to stop eating all ocean and all freshwater fish and all ocean fish because of microplastics and PFAS. And I'm concerned about seaweed. I've seen some tests that um, have discouraged me from recently eating it. We do not need any more bioaccumulation of, of toxic chemicals. Right, and it's a really valid you know, concern considering that seaweed does have this ability, right, to remediate polluted sites, right? So we know that it does have an ability to take up certain um, compounds. Nicole. Yeah. It's a great question. So the question was about PFAS. So um, Bigelow has just gotten an investment from EPA and is working with the Friends of Casco Bay, and I hope I don't miss anybody. But we've just developed a new testing facility for PFAS in ocean-raised organisms. So the study right now is focusing on blue mussels as a model because it's like the lab rat for ocean studies. They are a filter feeder. They take up a lot of things. So it's not that anybody thinks that mussels is going to be any worse off with PFAS than any other organism. It's just they're a great example organism to do this research. What's that facility called? Bigelow Laboratory for Ocean Sciences in East Booth Bay. And Chris Epley runs that lab. We are also going to be offering him some samples to run for seaweed. So I don't have an answer to your question yet, other than that the testing that they've done thus far in mussels, the values are below the limits that have been set. So there's just curiosity about the mussels, but not concern that they're actually dangerous to eat. And there's no data that we have on seaweed yet. I would also say that, yes, seaweed's a great sponge, so there are other things that you could and should worry about, like heavy metals, in particular arsenic. So our coast here is, um, by its geology and the granite that it has, sheds a lot of arsenic into the seawater. There are two forms of arsenic that you need to think about, the organic form and the inorganic form. It's only the inorganic form that is the concerning form. Organic form is fine, it flows right through you. Seaweeds are pretty high in total arsenic, but they're actually quite low in that inorganic dangerous arsenic. And we have not measured anything above the levels that one would be concerned about in any seaweeds coming from Maine to date. We were funded by the Maine Technology Institute to get the equipment that would be necessary to do that kind of research. It's quite expensive and quite difficult to use and run and analyze. There's an interesting study happening right now with the National Institute of Science and Technology. Not all labs operate the same way. And in particular, it's not the um, equipment used to run the analysis, it's the digestion of the tissue in the first place. And if you want to send your seaweed to one of the produce um, labs that you might send your own materials to, often they have no idea how to handle that seaweed tissue, which is really hard to break down. You need to work with labs that are doing this NIST round-robin exercise to prove to themselves and to each other how accurate and precise they are at making those measurements in seaweeds. And I do hope that something similar for PFAS is on the horizon so that you can all have confidence in the numbers that you receive from these laboratories. Thanks. And did you want to add anything to that? I'm not sure how the NIST Farms is, is approaching this issue or if, if you are. 
Yeah, I think Nicole answered the question great. I'm sure Thu and Nicole are constantly talking about this, but we're always looking at ways to better testing. Seaweed is so new in America that we've got more questions than answers right now, but we are working on answering all of those questions. Just a quick thought. It's a hypothesis that I'm curious about, but for organic certifications of seaweed farms, one of the qualifications is that it needs to be away from freshwater runoff. It cannot have its nutrient source from ag runoff, for instance. It might be that organic seaweed farms are sited in those places that are also least <coughs> likely to be exposed to PFAS. I'm very curious about that and want to continue along that line of thinking. So I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it here. There's obviously so much more to say about this. I would like to thank our panelists um, and all of you for sticking with us. We just finished listening to a panel discussion on seaweed called Is Seaweed the Solution to Climate Change? The panel was recorded at the 2023 Common Ground Country Fair. For more information, visit the show notes available at weru.org. You've been listening to Common Ground Radio, which airs on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM. Archives of previous episodes can be found at weru.org, as well as the WERU app. A special thanks to my guests for joining me today. I'd also like to thank the show's editor, Claire Boland. Stay tuned for more great programming.